If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel, and this week, I want you to meet Emma Greed, the co-founder and CEO of Good American, the first fully inclusive fashion brand that celebrates all dimensions of female power. In 2016, Emma launched Good American with Khloe Kardashian to empower all women to celebrate their bodies with confidence and offer high quality designs in all sizes. Good American kicked off with the largest denim launch in history, bringing over $1 million on day one. Since then, the brand has evolved to include inclusive fashion line of denim, ready to wear, swim, shoes, and activewear. Prior to Good American, Emma worked in entertainment marketing at Inca Productions and later became CEO and chairman of ITB Worldwide. In the first decade of her career, she identified the power of forging partnerships with celebrity talent to accelerate a brand's exposure and leverage this expertise to build talent-backed businesses of her own, beginning with Good American. Emma is also a founding partner at Fashion Brand Skims and the co-founder of Safely, the plant-powered cleaning company. In addition to all of that, she is a board member of The Real Real, Women for Women International, and Baby to Baby. Let's welcome Emma. Welcome, Emma. I'm so happy to have you here today. Um, let's dive right in. You are behind some of the most iconic brands at the moment, but I really want to just start with Good American. What is Good American in your own words? And what was the aha moment where you said, I've got to go build this amazing company? I love that you asked me about the aha moment because I think it truly was an aha moment. You know, my background, I spent the 10 years before I started Good American really working at this intersection of where like fashion and entertainment came together. And so my job, I'd started an agency called ITB, which I later sold to Interpublic Group. And essentially I worked on behalf of brands, forging partnerships with talent and forging partnerships with other brands. And, you know, it's so interesting. I think halfway through that, there came this kind of, you know, insistence from my clients that, you know, can you find me a diverse cast? And can you, you know, we need a black woman for this region or an Asian woman for this region. And, you know, it kind of started me thinking that wouldn't it be amazing if the company was actually truly a diverse company as opposed to, you know, the marketing trying to, to do that, which was just, you know, it was just a complete fake out. And then, you know, if you work in the fashion industry, there is this, reminder every day in what you're doing that the large majority of women are just left out of the fashion conversation because of their size and so those two kind of realizations led me to a place of thinking you know what does it actually even mean to be a woman today and why are we so you know so bombarded with so many messages that are so exclusive that leave most people out of the conversation and that is honestly where good americans started i was like i'm going to create a company that is diverse, not just through marketing, but in every level, from the board level right down, and that actually it would service all women. But really, really importantly, that you would never ever sacrifice, 
you know, style for the sake of inclusivity, because my big realization was ultimately, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, what size you are, we all want what we want. <laughs> and, and then it just simply wasn't available if you were at the larger end of the size spectrum. So I'm like, I'm just going to make a company that makes all things in all sizes for all women. It was that simple. Um, and, and that is how Good American was born. I love it. So let's go back to those early days. How did you get it going? Walk us just through like those early meetings. How did you get actually up and running? What was it like? You know, I thought coming from 10 years of working in fashion, I knew something about fashion. What it turns out is I knew a lot about fashion. I knew nothing about manufacturing apparel. And that is essentially what I was starting, right? It was an apparel company. And, you know, I think a lot of people will you know, really kind of feel this deeply when I say it, but your idea can start out really big. You know, it was like, I'm going to have this inclusive clothing brand. And actually I found out I was pregnant and the idea kind of shrunk and shrunk and shrunk because you've got this looming timeline where like, I'm going to have a baby on or around this day. So the idea went from, I'm going to have this inclusive clothing brand. Maybe it should just be denim, maybe just denim bottoms. Actually what we launched with was two styles of skinny jeans, higher and higher. <laughs> and it was literally like you know the the thing just shrunk and so it was something that we could die you know ultimately digest and do but you know I knew nothing about fundraising I knew nothing about running an apparel business what I am is a I would say a very strong marketeer I knew I had an incredible idea and I knew I had a point of acceleration and a way of getting to women with Chloe Kardashian as my partner because it meant anything that we do was going to get posted out to I think she had like 80 million followers at the time so I was like okay I'm going to make an incredible product and I know that I can get it out and that's really where it started but the fundraising piece for me was completely uncharted territory I didn't know how to ask people for money in a formalized way and so I did it in the only way I knew how which was to literally call people that I'd done good work for in the past and see if I could get some money off of them and and they did <laughs> it turned out to be a really good bet for those people but it was very very naive I would say I knew nothing about logistics about warehousing about inventory about planning and so I literally learned it all as I was going along. And I say this all the time, you know, Good American famously launched with a million dollars of sales on the first day. And, you know, at 9 a.m., everyone was like, Emma, you're a genius. You know, we're watching the screen on Shopify and all the, you know, customers kind of coming in. And I think by about 10.30 a.m., the tide had changed. And it was like, maybe you kind of slightly under, you know, you underbought, you underpitched this. And by 12, it was like, you literally have no freaking idea what you're doing and so I went from this like super high to this super low in three hours and you know spent the following four days calling customers literally emailing customers saying I'm sorry you're on a wait list we have nothing to sell you and it's going to take me 16 weeks before I can get any stock to you whatsoever oh my god so basically and I was just going to go there <laughs> You famously literally launched the site, got up and running and sold a million dollars of product in one day. And but yeah. what I basically am hearing you say is you're an idiot because you didn't have enough inventory and you had to tell people, I'm so sorry, but in 16 weeks, maybe you'll get a pair of jeans. Maybe. Um, and even that was make-believe, right? Because you have no idea. Like, at that point, supply chain to me was an entire mystery. And I do remember, you know, and still she is my chief product officer today. Melissa Anderson kind of sitting next to me and saying, you do know you're off calendar, don't you? Like, what's she talking to me about calendars for? You know, that naive that I didn't even understand 
the concept of what it would take to get back into stock because I was so in my own head of how do I get people to understand what I'm doing? I never imagined in a million years that they would get it. And so that was, you know, to say I started on the back foot is an understatement. I want to talk a little bit about where Good American is today. You offer so many things, but I want to walk through just some of the more unique things you've done. So get the basics of let's just build a product that is inclusive for everybody that, you know, has sizes that fit everybody. One of my favorite anecdotes that I learned was you introduced a size 15 when you realized the majority of the returns were coming from size 14 and size 16. Mm -hmm. And you're like, we're missing a size. Yeah. You used really thoughtful data to basically say, let's go make, let's go make what our customers need. Give us a, a few more things that you did differently as you've been building the brand. Walk us through a few other kind of unique things that Good American's done. You know, it's so interesting because size 15 is something that comes up time and time again when I speak to people and, and you know, it was a really smart thing to do, even if I say so myself. But if you look, you know, at the genesis of where and how, you know, you make those decisions, what I rely on because I didn't have much experience with this kind of gut instinct, coupled with just listening to my customers. Now, you know, we know there are so many direct-to-consumer brands that talk about fostering this idea of community and listening to your community. And we did that right from the beginning because we created this dialogue where we allowed people to come and tell us not only what we were getting right for them, but what we were doing not so well. And so when you have that with your customers, they literally will guide the way for you. I've never sat in a meeting and had a conversation about category development. What I've done is sat in a meeting talking about what are our community telling us they need? And then we make decisions based off of that. And of course, yes, there's a, you know, an enormous amount of data and you know, data science behind that but it, you've got to be willing to have your ears open and then to shift what you're doing in your business based on what the data is telling you. And that's been one of my single biggest learnings. Like if you were willing to look at things and willing to listen, as well as following my gut instinct, often they have become the most you know, impactful things that we've ever done in the business. And size 15 was, it was a eureka moment because we've sitting there understanding the disparity between those sizes. And when I said, well, let's just make a size in between everybody looked at me like I was crazy that like, you can't do that the factories won't understand what you're talking about that's where the missy you know the regular sizes end and the plus sizes start you can't do that and actually I think that some of my naivety and the fact that I'm not an apparel expert has led to the biggest unlocks that we've had and so we've really decided you know again it was very naive in the beginning that we would try to put out little surveys or get focus groups together and talk to customers now that's become very very deliberate and so really, really creating the opportunity to create these feedback loops is something that we do, you know, all the time in our business. And before we even start looking at a category, we really try to understand the white space, not just looking at the market, but understanding what customers want. It's like if you are a woman with really, really big bust. Uh, and a tiny waist, like what's missing in the market for you? And so I think that that kind of, ability to understand what customers want is actually what is, you know, a superpower of Good American. You started with denim and you've now gone into many, many other categories. What have you learned through that experience? And how do you think about the future of the brand as you continue to build? It's a great question because, you know, when I think about categories, for me, there are things that we can do and there are things that we absolutely can't do. And so my rule around product is, you know, can we innovate in and around fit and fabrication? And if we can't, then we shouldn't be in that category. You know, you will not see me doing 
a sunglasses license, for example, because I can't give you anything better than what's in the market. But can I actually take the fabrication and take fit and pattern and everything that we know and have learned about women's bodies and reiterate that to make better products? then it means I can be in the space. So when you look at something, and it typically tends to be like those pain points for women, right? Nobody looks forward to shopping for swimwear, for example. It can actually bring out dread in so many women, regardless of what your body looks like, because it's just the pain. And so what we're trying to do is like reduce all that friction, take all the pain out. And part of that is like, just make a whole bunch of sizes, like make it in everyone's size so that at a certain point you are not having to go, I'm tapping out of this brand because they don't even cater for me. So like, that's the first point of friction. And then we're trying to be like really, really thoughtful and really innovative. And what that takes is actually not necessarily genius design but it's really in that development piece it's how do you work with the fabric mills how do you you know for us it's been about taking you know 18 months of development on a fabric like always fits which stretches up to four sizes which essentially gives you four different sizes in one size of jeans and that's genius for women but it's also super impactful from a sustainability point of view because you don't have to produce so many sizes and so much inventory so for us we're always looking for like these places that we can win and take these kind of giant leaps and they come from the most unexpected places i would say i love it you are at your core a branding expert you are teach us all like give everyone a little bit if we're going to say like what is the emma playbook nobody has ever asked me that question and what you know to say like what what is my playbook first of all i think that I do think about myself as a marketeer first. And what I've really learned is product is king, right? If you don't have a great product, you can't market yourself out of bad products. It's just that simple. So for me, I've really focused all of my energy on creating, you know, best in class product. And when you've got that, they will come, right? It's just, it's just that simple. And so I think that that is the, the starting place that like create a reason for people to understand why are they coming to you? Let's be honest, there's lots and lots of blue jeans on the market. But what I know better than most is that the shopping experience around buying jeans can be really painful. And that most denim is cut with straight patterns and I don't know any straight women. And so it really can be the most simplistic things that become the unlock. And I do think that sometimes, you know, what, what we do as humans is try to overcomplicate things. I also have this idea that if, you know, if I have a problem with something, the likelihood is there are so many more women out there that feel the same as me. And so that gut instinct piece really comes into it because I honestly believe that things should be easier. And if I am thinking something somebody else is, and therefore, how can I make something better? How can I like take the friction out of it and take the problems? These are not so much kind of you know, branding moments, but they're really just about thinking through things and understanding like where is the white space. And then this idea of listening is something that I've taken into like really into the heart of every single business that I'm involved with. Like, you know, everybody will tell you what they want and how they want it if you're just smart enough to listen. And so in the beginning of Good American, when we decided, okay, we're going to photograph 
every single product on three different sizes. That came from an insight that I had because I'm five foot four and I'm not a size zero. And most product on most websites is photographed on a girl that's five foot 11 and a size zero. Well, it ain't gonna look like that on me. Let's just be honest. And so that was like, I'm solving a pain point for myself. And so I'm just gonna photograph it so every woman can come on and actually, you know, in the beginning of Good American, did I have the, the money? to you know to take make e-com shoots three days longer three days more expensive bring in extra models no but what i do know is that if you give customers a value add you give them a reason to keep coming back to you and one of the first things people always say to me is like i love good american i could live in those jeans all day oh and by the way i love it that i can see it on a body just like mine hands down that's what everybody will come to me and say and so sometimes i think taking you know the extra time and the things you know to be true can ultimately be you know the great unlocks in your business and if you'd have asked me at the beginning like was that going to be such a game changer was that going to be something to people talk to me about no i thought it was convenience for myself but it turned out that other people cared too COVID has changed our wardrobes. We've all been like joking terribly how the hell are we going to ever leave our house again? What do we wear when we do that? How do you think about how COVID's changed your business? I'm not sure that I'm a, a wartime president. You know, when COVID broke, I was like, oh my God, we're all going to die. This is terrible. You know, what am I going to tell everybody? I'm great when the going's good. And I just thought to myself, this is a disaster. COVID has taught us so much, right, about our own personal lives. I'm not, this is not necessarily the forum for it, but it's taught me a lot personally. It's taught me a lot about being a leader. I also think that, you know, with that level of uncertainty, what do you do? I couldn't understand what was happening and what was going to happen on the outside. And for me, that was about an opportunity to double down on my people, on the culture. Like what could, I could teach everybody so much more about Good American and why we existed in the marketplace. I couldn't tell you if our wholesale partners were coming back to buy the following month, which by the way, they weren't and they didn't for many months. But, you know, for me, I was like, there's opportunity in everything. And I think the biggest outtake from COVID was that, you know, you can find a way to make things better, even seemingly when everything's crashing down against you. And for me, that was an investment in my people. It was an investment in thinking about how the business is going to evolve. And it really, really worked because I think the people that are in Good American feel even more affinity to the brand now because of what we did in those kind of first three, four months of the business was ultimately was investing in them and their career trajectories and what they do at work and, and how they work at home. So those were really important learnings. From a, a pure, you know, like outside point of view, I always had the faith that, you know, people were going to come back and put clothes on again. And, you know, we were one of the lucky, lucky people or lucky businesses where you had those kind of initial four days where everything fell off and there were no sales and wholesale was shutting and sending product back. And then sales went absolutely through the roof because people that weren't already shopping online suddenly had no other choice but to come online. So it's almost kind of taken a generation of people that weren't, didn't have those shopping behaviors and pushed them into, you know, direct to consumer, whether they liked it or not. So I wouldn't say that we've seen so much you know that the idea that everyone's wearing sweatpants all the time yeah I saw sweatpants and yoga pants those sales go up but you know denim is one of those categories that it doesn't matter where you are who you are what you're doing what walk of life you're from you're always going to feel pretty good about a purchase that you're going to wear 
two or three times a week. And so we were in the right category at the right time in a purchase that feels very, very safe and continues to be that way. Last question, just in general, you are sitting in the perch of retail. You're watching it. If you had to tell us one big bet that you would be excited to make over the next decade, it can be anything. But as you think about the category, how do you think about, and so you literally live in like a dual house of people thinking about retail. How do you guys think about the next decade? What do you think is obvious? You know, it's so interesting. It's going to be like horribly unpopular. I actually just don't think stores in real life is going anywhere. You know, we're all so excited when we still have a business that sells direct to consumer about our business model. It's like, we don't have any stores. We don't have any overheads. At the end of the day, people are people. I want in real life experiences. I want to go into a shop. I want to speak to a girl. I want to know what she just bought. And so I'm actually quite excited about the future and the next iteration of stores. Like I love technology and what that does for us. And I love to have things delivered to my house. But it's like the fusion of those two things, like how can tech support an in real life experience? That's the stuff that I'm excited about. I still think that that people are going to want to leave their homes and go and see somebody <laughs> and, and have a conversation about what it is that they're buying. And I think that for me, like reimagining retail is probably one of the most exciting things that we talk about. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on For Starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. So let's transition to you. Tell us a little bit about you. You grew up in East London. Did you always know that you wanted to be in fashion? Did you always know you wanted to be a founder? What were you like as a little kid? I always knew I wanted to be in fashion. You know, I grew up in the, probably the most unglamorous place in the world, in East London, or it was when, when I was a kid, which is so long ago now. But I did, I always wanted to be in fashion. You know, I was obsessed with all the supermodels, Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss and Linda Evangelista. I used to, you know, take my pocket money, my allowance and buy Vogue when I was seven or eight, which was pretty extraordinary from where I came from. And I definitely had an idea that I wanted to be in fashion. And actually the beginnings of my career didn't really take me there. I was in production, yes, fashion show production, but it means you're building the stage. You're really not part of the collection and the, the messaging or anything like that. But I was, you know, a pretty introverted kid. I did not make friends easily. My sisters were the popular ones. My sisters were the ones that were great at sports. I ditched every single physical education lesson of life. <laughs> I cheated on all of my spelling tests. I was not a natural academic. And I later found out, like, it wasn't until I was 21 that I found out how severely dyslexic I was. And so I was a keen student, but it literally used to fry my brain. And in those days, you know, there were 35 kids in a class. And if you were rubbish, you just sat at the back, <laughs> which, is, which is what I did. And it wasn't until I was 16 when I started working. I went to the London College of Fashion and studied business and you know, even that for me was a struggle because at that point I'd left home, I needed money. So I went to work and it wasn't until I started working that I just 
found it to me like the whole world just unfolded I was like oh this is what I'm supposed to be doing I get it you know I was like the world's best shop assistant I sold the most I opened the most you know cards like I was I was just so focused when I got into a work environment I just was never a good student so let's talk a little bit about obviously your husband runs another iconic denim brand literally you are guys are side by side running denim brands what is it like having two fashion entrepreneurs in your house every day and what have you guys learned from one another we learn so much from each other you know it, it feels like pretty miserable to say I, I think that Jens is probably my greatest mentor you know we met through work and so we had a very established professional relationship before our personal relationship got started which is helpful we've also kind of decided that you know there are no rules like we don't stop talking about work we love what we do and it's fine so nobody's ever like I'm sorry it's Saturday don't talk to me about business it's like we've just accepted that we're going to speak about work it comes up whenever whatever we're doing you know and and that's okay there is definitely competition but you know frame is just five years ahead of good american and so for the most part there's just an enormous amount of learnings and an enormous amount of sharing and somebody to share in the highs and the lows because inevitably if you don't have any stock on your first day of business you know i i was calling yes <laughs> so, what would you do did I do you know so I think there's a lot of sharing in in the problems and I think the the great thing about our relationship is that you know we share a family we share responsibilities but we also share this idea of great ambition and so it's much easier to be with somebody who gets why you are who you are and, and what that means ultimately it, it was probably one of my best moves to marry somebody kind of similar to me in so many ways you guys so literally picked up from London to move to LA, which by the way, your accent is so charming, I have to say. Um, to launch Good American, how did you not only know that this opportunity was worth packing up for, but also talk a little bit of doing all the things that you guys are doing with little kids? How do you make sense of it through COVID, all of it? Yeah, I, um, I didn't know. You know, I, I didn't expect a Good American to kick off as quickly as it did. I thought it would be a slow burn. I thought that you would need to educate customers a little bit more. And, you know, I, I really didn't expect it to be an overnight success. And so moving to LA was a huge gamble for me. I'm a real, I'm a real London girl. I love London. I like walking places. I never thought in a million years, you know, I'd, I'd spent 10 years going back and forward in LA. And to me, it was a city where, you know, the entertainment people were, this is where I came to meet managers, agents, publicists, and, and take lunches and, look at people reading scripts around a pool. I didn't think it was a city for real where stuff happened. And so it was a big step for me to move here, but it's been one of the best things, both professionally and personally that I ever did, because I feel that, you know, for my children, when, when you know, when you're English and you wake up every day in the sunshine, that's fantastic, but it was a great move for my family. And I don't think it would have worked out unless that had been the case, right? That I had the balance of professional and personal. I do really believe that, you know, I'm always asked the same question, you know, how do you do it? Like, how are you, you know, mom with two children and these businesses? And, you know, I hate to perpetuate a myth that like, you can have it all. I have some semblance of great balance that, you know, I'm, it's just rubbish. I, I, I do it all with an enormous amount of help. Right. I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I don't go home to an unmade bed and an uncleaned house with kids that are waiting on me to feed them. 
that's not my reality. And I feel like, you know, I, I wish more women were really honest about what it actually takes when you're a very successful woman. It takes a lot of people and, and you can't do it on your own, right? That, that's the first thing to say. But I also have kind of parked that idea of mum guilt because to my, in my view, I believe that the best thing I can show my kids is that, you know, the very point of your life and your existence is self-actualization. If I show them that looking after me is really high up on my list of priorities, I'm only teaching them that for them to look after themselves and to fulfill their own dream and their own destiny is equally important. So I'm not here making sacrifices for my kids every day. That's not my reality. What I'm doing is showing them that like mummy goes to work, that's how I'm most happy. That's probably where you guys are gonna find fulfillment. And I am not about to feel any sense of guilt about it whatsoever. It, you know, what's important about motherhood is that you're happy. My children need to see a, a fulfilled mum. And I'm not like sitting here, you know, trying to, to you know, to put any of like to, to project anything on them. I'm feeling really good about what I'm doing and um, and I'm not feeling like I've sacrificed anything. I'm I'm pursuing my goals and I think that my children see me at my absolute best when I'm doing that. Last question on you, just because you do do a lot, dual in you know, dual family entrepreneurs, kids, lots of things. How do you stay sane? What are your things that you swear by? <laughs> you know, there are so many. I have like a laundry list of things that I have to get through. But I think my big hack is like not treating them, not treating the things I need to do to keep on track um, and, and of sound mind as like extra stuff. To me, it's just like part of the day. So I schedule things like my chiropractor and acupuncturist and massage, like the ways that I need to unwind and keep myself well like any other meeting with regularity in that they don't move. I'm not messing around. I'm not cutting them down. And I do think that that stuff for me, is like, I'm a, I'm a migraine sufferer. And so I need those adjustments that keeps me well. And that starves off headaches. And I do think in general that I'm pretty one track minded. You know, I always say to everyone, like there's so much to do, but it's like, I have very, very specific goals. And I basically say no to everything that isn't getting me closer to the goals. And, and that's the only way I can cope. It's the only way I'm gonna get to where I wanna go. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there listening, if you haven't already checked out Good American, head to goodamerican.com, get yourself some incredible, incredible clothing. And you can join us next week for Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobol. Emma, sincerely, thank you so much. Thank you so much, such a pleasure.